This episode is brought to you by Milne Feeds. Milne Feeds have been the leading provider of livestock feed in WA for over 100 years and is now proudly servicing the Northern Territory too. Their early weaner product is a nutritionally balanced pellet for feeding to pastoral calves and young weaners and has been developed with their high-fibre technology to reduce the risk of acidosis. Milne Feeds also have a range of products available for beef and dairy cattle, sheep and horses. Find out more at milne.com.au. You're listening to the Central Station Podcast where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. This podcast is brought to you by Ariat Australia, the perfect choice for the tough jobs. Ariat boots and clothing work hard, look good, and are so comfortable there's never a need to slow down. Visit ariat.com.au today. Last week, one of our Central Station listeners was passing through Catherine in the Northern Territory, which is where I live, and they reached out and said they'd love to catch up and, um, you know, talk about some things. And of course, I'm always happy to meet people, and their business model is something that aligns with Central Station, um, and so they were looking to make some connections and connect with cattle stations in this region. So I was like, yeah, no worries, let's go have a coffee in the morning, even though I don't drink coffee. Anyway, so I went to go meet this listener. His name is Rob, and Rob turned up with another colleague called Rocky. And so we're just having a yarn, seeing if there's any way I could help connect them with local stations. And I learned a bit more about Rocky and Rob, and I was like, do you guys want to come on the podcast? And these champions came to my house about six hours later with no planning at all and and agreed to do a podcast, which is what today's episode is. I always say everyone has a story and it doesn't matter how boring you might think it might be, but it's interesting to someone else. And today's story is bloody fascinating. And I just, you know, absolute fluke to come across it. If I hadn't said yes to going out for coffee with these guys, I wouldn't have, you know, we wouldn't have today's episode. So that's just my little intro, but there is a proper intro. So I'll read that to you guys now. In 2002, Ian Rocky Rockwell took a group of Year 11 students from Sydney to Alice Springs for an adventure. The kids were to trek the Larapinta Trail, ride camels, cook on campfires and experience the outback. That trip not only changed the trajectory of Rocky's life, but some of the students as well. Rob Mann was one of those students. In this episode, Rocky and Rob share the story about the trip that took place 20 years ago, how it impacted their lives, and how they went from student and teacher to mates and colleagues all these years later. To start, I asked Rocky to explain 
how we came up with the idea of taking a group of city kids to the outback. My love of the outback started probably when I was young. My, my parents took me on a, one of the first coach tours out to Central Australia in 1982. And I fell in love with the outback there. And uh, from that time, I always wanted to take people to the outback. So when I became a teacher, um, I love working with the students. I love taking them outdoors. And my idea was to create an amazing adventure, an adventure that really showed our country, but obviously headed to the outback. What kind of teacher were you? Our PE teacher. Okay, well, it's, it's good that you were PE and not math or science or something because I don't know if there would have been much scope in your job description to take the kids out to the outback. That's um, right. It was great, great opportunity. How long were you a teacher for before or were you teaching before you were able to do something like this? Um, well, 2002, I started teaching in 1996. So 2002 was the first big trip that we took to the outback, so six years. And were you with that same school the whole time? Yeah, same school. Yeah, okay. So you kind of like did your time there, got your runs on the board, kind of built some trust with the other staff, and then you're like, hey, got this little pipe dream. Yeah, I'm not sure if they really trusted me, but um, (laughs) I just knew that it was going to be good for the kids, and I knew that they would get a lot out of it. Yeah, so what was the plan? How many kids? How long? Where do you go? Yeah, that that first trip, I think we had probably – might have been 18 or 19 uh, students, thereabouts. And uh, I wanted to show them how big the country was as well. Uh, you know, these are all kids who are pretty sheltered, um, didn't know too much about outside of their world. And I wanted to show how big our country was and how beautiful our country was and share my love of the outback with them. I guess that's some, um, I probably should ask, where is this school? Uh, it was in a place called uh, MacArthur Anglican School or it was in Cobbity, near Camden, Sydney. Oh, oh, okay. I was like, I don't know. I was like, that name sounds familiar, but no idea. Okay, so Sydney. And how did you go about pitching the idea to the school and to the parents? Well, I just I came up with the idea and, um, I want, as I said, I wanted to show them how big the country was. So I wasn't just going to fly them into Alice and, and pop them in there off the big plane. So we flew to Adelaide and then caught the garn up the middle uh, so they could sort of soak up the, the feel of the size of the country as we travelled on the car. And then um, so I put the plan together, put a bit of a itinerary together, uh, went to the boss and said, this is what we need to do with these kids. It's going to be amazing. I just want them to have a great adventure. Um, had a parent inf- information evening and then uh, they all signed up and away we went. Wow, and so the school was fairly supportive of the idea? Yeah, totally supportive, yeah. It was That's great. That's amazing. And so you had about... About 20 kids on the trip? Yeah, roughly, from memory. And how many supervisors? Um, well, there was me and probably two others. And was it all boys or all girls? Co-ed. Co-ed, okay. Oh, so an extra. And how old are we talking? Uh, they were year 11 students, so okay. 17. Oh, wow. So, yeah, you've got you know, plenty to keep an eye on. Yeah. <laughs> We've got one of the students who was on that very first trip here today. And so it's been almost 20, or has been 20 years. Did you say it was 2002? 2002, yeah. 20 wow. years. Yeah. So as a student, you were on that very first, the inaugural trip. What was it like? Oh, it was a great trip. Obviously, um, at that time of your life, it's probably the first real long period of time you spend away from your family. Um, a bit of independence. You, you get a bit of free reign for those few weeks that we're away. Yeah, it was great. It was a great adventure. I never knew any part of Australia existed like that and it was a real eye-opener and it led to many other things off the back of that. 
Rocky, can you tell me about what was planned for that first trip to Central Australia? Yeah, sure. I can remember it well. Um, So, as I said, we went out on the car to give the kids a picture of the size of the country. Uh, Then we had an expedition, a three-day expedition on the Larapinta Trail. Uh, From there, we moved down to Rainbow Valley, which is just south of Alice by about 100 kilometres. And we had a three-day camel expedition um, out in the Rainbow Valley. Uh, after that, we headed down to Uluru and did the walks around Uluru, Katajuda, uh, and Kings Canyon as well. So I think it was up around a 13-day program in total, um, and we just had an amazing time. There's got to be some stories from this trip. Come on, guys, don't hold back. Tell me. I mean, you've got, you were both on the trip. I know you guys, the way you're looking at each other, I know there's stories. Well, I know exactly what story he's about yeah, to tell. There's, there's a few stories for sure. <laughs> uh, but the, one of the funny ones was... Uh, Rob here decided that he might dye his hair for the, the trip. Yeah. So you had dark hair and you tried to go blonde? Yeah, so at the time there was a big thing like bleaching your hair. Yeah, like the frosted tips. Yeah, like Brett Lee sort of thing going and um, a couple of my mates had done it, but they had quite light hair as it was. My hair was pretty, pretty like jet sort of black really at the time or very dark brown at least. Um, and chatting to you earlier, um, you know, Alice... Alice Springs can be a bit of a um, hairy old place at night time sometimes and I think it was about 11 or 12 o'clock at night. It mustn't have been that late. Coles was open still, so it must have been about 10 o'clock at night. It was late though. Snuck out of our accommodation and ran down to Coles and got some peroxide to um, do it in the um, in the cabins that we're staying in. That's how badly I wanted to dye my hair, that we went to those lengths to run through Alice, not knowing anything about the town or, um, yeah, to get this hair dyed. And it, it, the next day, it was, um, it was like, I look, my head looked like, you know, I've had a can of sunkiss pulled over the top sort of thing. <laughs> I love that you, I thought you did it before the trip, but you've done it during the trip. So you've put all the kids to bed one night, Rob, and they've all turned up at breakfast and you've been like, what the hell happened to you? There was certainly some laughs. Yeah, so, <laughs> Wu-Tan, I think. <laughs> yeah, something like that, Wu-Tan. My name became Wu-Tan. <laughs> I don't know if you ever intend on doing that in the future, but it sounds like you needed a toner. That's an, it's another thing you put on, like a purple shampoo, and it will t- take your brassy tones to a nice, cool, kind of silver yellow. Well, the the advice uh, will, won't, won't need to go any further because I'm bald now. <laughs> my mum actually still blames because I'm the only bald person in all my family, you know, for generations, and um, my mum blames the fact that I put peroxide <laughs> in my hair to this day. So there you go. And what else happened on this trip? I mean, so the first part was the train ride and then Larapinta Trail? Yep, that's right. Yeah, so we, we all headed off on a hike. It was pretty warm. Um, and obviously these kids have uh, done some hiking, so they had a bit of experience. But the conditions are tough out there. It's a rugged, rugged landscape, uh, which is one of the beauties of it. It's one of the reasons I love taking kids out there. We went through our walk. It was, it was tough. The, the kids had a great time. They struggled, which is what I enjoy. I like to see people grow through that sort of struggle. Um, when I say struggle, it's not like I'm trying to get them to do well beyond what they need to do or can do. It's just an opportunity for them to, to recognise that it's okay to do things tough sometimes, recognise that you can deal with things in a positive way or you can deal with things in a negative way and, and how you approach those challenges is the sorts of things we try and draw out on those programs. So is that what you and the other teachers were there, not just to keep an eye on them and keep them basically alive and 
and you know, so in, in their classroom, in their rooms at night. Yeah, yeah, yeah that that too. Um, yeah, you're brave for taking a coed like class. That's yeah, that's very brave. But I guess you guys all must have had to have some kind of plan going into it about how you. I guess I guess that's probably something you do as a teacher anyway. Though you see kids and you kind of have to develop help develop them and it's not like there's a, a manual or a book for that though like every case would be so unique absolutely and that's that's one of the beauties of of working with teenagers is is just the diversity the opportunity for them to grow uh the different ways to deal with each student to make sure you're trying to get the best out of them uh when when they're away on a program like that uh the way you can look after them and care for them uh and just help them discover themselves and discover how amazing they can be how they can do more than they think and uh, to watch them grow. And for me, just seeing a big smile on, on a teenager's face is fantastic. As long as it's not while they're holding like a can of spray paint or something. <laughs> well, that's right. <laughs> or like a six-pack of cruisers. What were some of the things that they struggled with that you, I, I guess, on that trip? Yeah, definitely the conditions. It was tough conditions. And um, I remember we headed out the first morning and and uh, a few of them, you know, were, were struggling with the heat. And, uh, things like that. So it's just a matter of, uh, working together, having good breaks, um, taking our time and just being able to manage the, the whole mood of the whole group is really, really important. Uh, motivation needs to be stay, keep high. Need to talk to them about working for each other and helping each other out with stuff like that. I've got to be honest. When you're describing, I guess, like this first part of the trip, the the whole vision I've got in my mind is the I'm um, celebrity get me out of here, like them being in that little camp and then trying to keep their motivation up and doing all the challenges and so that's exactly what's playing in my uh-huh. mind. It probably does look like from that from the outside at times, but um, yeah, I think they got it pretty easy in there actually. But the Lara Pinter at 38 degrees or whatever it is is tough for a 16 year old kid with a 20 kilo backpack on their back and um. There's no shade at all on that track. Um, yeah, it, it was pretty full on, actually. Uh, it knocks, it knocked me around. I can remember it vividly. We've taken lots of kids sa- since and, um, I, I think we do such a great job at it now because we know how it feels. Like we know how they're going to feel in that moment. And, um, yeah, it's, it is tough out there and you, all your food and water, everything's in that backpack too. So. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you get to camp and you've chosen the wrong food and it's like, well, that's not going to be any good now. So um, that can get your morale down too as well. I think we had a bit of um, some issues there on the first night, didn't we? Yeah, Frankfurt's. I think I packed Frankfurt's to have hot dogs and it's like they were hot dogs. They, um, they were, oh. I didn't eat them. One of my friends hated them though. He swears that he was had food poisoning for the next two days. <laughs> so you had some level of responsibility in kind of packing your own food in oh, a yeah. way like they, they needed to shop themselves. We got the house shopped and they chose what they were gonna take with them and oh, you know, it was up to them to do that part of it. Wow, that would have been a good learning curve for a big one. Yeah. And then so off to Rainbow Valley, which is just south of Alice. I actually went out there in September and met some of the TOs that live out on there's like a little kind of portion that's kind of uh, separated off um, that they've got. Walkabout Boar Station is what they call it. The name was escaping me there for a moment. So you guys went out on a camel tour? Like were you riding camels or walking them? No, again, I wanted them to have the full adventure. And when I was researching this, there's a few camel farms that would uh, string the camels together, a camel train, 
I uh, said, we're not interested in that. I want to ride camels properly. I want the kids to have their own camel, look after their camel, um, be with their camel for the three days. So that's what we did. We had our own camels. We took the saddles off, put the saddles on. We rode them free range. They, they weren't tied to anything. Um, and we headed out into the wild and it was just fantastic. We ended up having camel races, but we would line them up and have races and, um, yeah, it was good. It was good. I remember my camel's name, Duke. Um, you had big, um, the big, the big bull camel. Anyways, he did the big thing where they put, bring their throat up and stuff like that. Oh. Like it was wild. Um, and yeah, we looked after them for the whole time. We, we had to take the saddles off and, and water them and feed them and all that sort of stuff. So it was pretty cool. Also too, on that particular part of the trip, um, I met a, um, each night would stay at the same camp out there in Rainbow Valley. It may well be where you, Speaking of, um, there's an indigenous community out there now. It might be a similar spot, but uh, we'd camp up there in our swags, and and one of the the guides, I guess, that was out there helping. His name was Paulie, and I and I believe he's from Catherine. But um, he would tell us stories each night about like working in stock camps and um, being a ringer and all these words that I didn't even know of before. But it just sounded wild, and he was telling us about like mustering cattle with helicopters and. Um, you know, mad horses and things like that. Just the territory sounded like a, a wild place. And from that point, I'm like, I need to get back there. When I finish school, I'm going to the territory and, and a couple of the other fellas that were on that trip too had the same idea. So, um, yeah, it led me to Catherine in, um, 2004. I was in Catherine, um, had booked into rural college and funnily enough, and this might sound like a bit of bullcrap for the story, but I ran into Paulie in Catherine within the first week of being here. And uh, I, I pictured him, obviously, when you're that age and someone's that influential, you, you remember him forever. Hey, Paulie. And he's like, he had no idea who I was. I was like, that's Rob, mate. And he's like, looking at me. And I just said, um, remember, you used to ride camels down at Stuart's Well? And he goes, yeah. I said, you're telling me all those stockman stories. And he said, yeah, that's right. And I go, I'm up here. I'm following your stories, mate. I'm going to give it a crack. He's like, oh, that's good, brother. That's good. So, um, he is an indigenous fella too. Um, yeah, he, he had a he had a pretty handy way with the camels, didn't he? Very, very good stockman. I'm sure he would have been. Now, just then you said, um, obviously this trip had a big impact on you, and that you booked in to go to the Royal College when you finished school. Just before we started recording, you told me that it didn't quite unfold that way. So. Do you want to tell us the full story? Yeah, it wasn't that. You know, us young 17, 18-year-olds think that, uh, you know, we know it all. We're watching a four-wheel drive show and, yeah, we're going to go do that. So we thought we were just getting a ute and a trailer and some motorbikes and we are just going to come up to the Territory and have an adventure. Uh, our mothers had different ideas. They laid it out pretty straight. Like, number one, you don't have utes or motorbikes or trailers. So how do you think you're going to get that? How are you going to fund this trip? So there was a few barriers to get across and then one of my mate's mothers, uh, she was a librarian, so she, you know, good at her research and stuff and she'd come across, uh, Catherine Rural College and, um, at the time, I think they're still doing them now or they've, they've brought them back in, but there's a 12 week certificate three, um, course, which was great because we're really suburban kids, knew how to skate and ride a push bike, but, I probably hadn't really ever sat on a horse in my life. Definitely never saddled one up. Um, probably hadn't been in a round yard ever. No, definitely hadn't been in a round yard ever. So 
that was a great course for us. We learnt lots. Um, it was good fun. It was like being on camp really for 12 weeks. And it, it just gave us enough skills then to, um, maybe go out and be a little bit useful or less, a little less pain in the ass on the, on a station after that. So, uh, it was good times. We often get together and, uh, bring up memories of, um, of Catherine and Fridays at Kirby's or, um, you know, different bits and pieces that went on. It was, it was really good. I reckon about, maybe not quite half, but a fair chunk of our guests on this podcast have been through the rural college. Like it's kind of seems to be, a central point in a lot of people's journeys and then they can go off in any which way direction in life. But there's always a story that kind of comes back to the Royal College or Kirby's if it's centred around Catherine. <laughs> it's still a good place, Kirby's. We've, we've been there most uh, afternoons this week for a game of pool and it's um, it's, it's definitely – you always see something there that um, gives you memories maybe, we'll say that. <laughs> Go in the memory bank. That's a diplomatic way of putting it. So I guess you're, did you all finish the college course together? Everyone stuck it out to the end? Yeah, we all finished. And, um, so I, um, I was lucky enough to be picked up, um, by a head stockman come up from Kalani at the time. And we we're doing some horse work with one of the, I think it was at the time one of CPC's horse breaker fellas, um, I'm going to say Jeff Toomby, maybe. Oh, that is, yep. That's is that his name? Yep. So I've, a... I've got a very particular memory for that point in time of people and names. And so he was there doing some extras with us. And Stuart Austin, you might know him. Yeah. He lived in Catherine for a long time. Yeah. He was the head stockman at Kalani. Is that who hired you? Yeah. So he come up and called me over and said, would you like to come down? And I had no idea. I'm like, oh, sure, I guess so. I'd I used to, when he and his wife Trish first had their baby and they were living out at one of those places I was telling you about earlier today at the end of Florina Road and I lived at the same little dongers with them. It's like, what a small world. He's a great man. and He's um, doing some really cool things at the moment. He is with Wilmot Cattle yeah. um, up in Armidale. And I'll get to that part of the story too because that oh. cross, we link back up there again Perfect. as well. But, I'll um, write that down. So um, anyways... The course finished. I went out there. One of my other friends, Blake, found a job in Mount Isa. I don't know how you used to find jobs then. Internet wasn't a massive thing. Definitely wasn't Facebook. Um, but our other friend who was also on that Duke of Ed, uh, he was, uh, the cattle just wasn't his thing. Um, he never felt comfortable in the cattle yards, which is fair enough. Um, scary thing for city slickers like us. So I said, mate, don't leave the territory. Like, it suits you out here. You know, he, he fitted right in. He became a packet of pack a day smoker straight up. Like, <laughs> it was just um, that does fit right in, yeah. Just he, he just he just embraced the territory really. Um, so I said, mate, why don't you ring Neil from down at the camel farm and see what's happening down there? So he did, and then yeah, jumped on the greyhound and worked for Neil for two years. In the first stint, and I think he went home, and then even went back out there for possibly another six months later on. So. Um, he was a camel man, not a cattleman. Yeah, camelman. That's that was him. But yeah, he was on the Duke of Ed trip too. So um, he became the Paulie, I guess, to some extent. Yeah, and I, I remember uh, we took another group of students there um, a couple of years after Rob and uh, Dan was working there. So one of the students I'd taken to the camel farm was now working at the camel farm, and I could tell the students that I'd taken out this time that uh, this is Dan and what he had done and all those sorts of things. It was great. That would must have been so cool to see. Yeah, it was unreal. Like oh, what good. a what an impact on someone's life that that experience had, and that you played a part in that. 
you know, to, to kind of set it up, but to say, you know, like, I can't imagine how else he would have ended up out on a camel farm if it wasn't for that trip. Oh, but without doubt, yeah. He wouldn't have. And yeah, he, he thrived there. <laughs> he, he really did. I think he was in his element. You, you saw him working, but, um, He'd always tell me stories and he, he could tell a good story, this bloke. He never let the truth get in the way of a good story. <laughs> but, um, I'm sure that was where he, where he needed to be for those couple of years of his life, that bloke. And so you headed off down the road to Kalani. Yeah, I was off. I went off down the road to Kalani. Um, I just met the Borman in town one day, jumped in the truck, whipped out there. It was pretty daunting for me, like 18 years old. Not really, uh, you know, well out of my comfort zone now, like rural college was where, you know, a lot of us were in similar situations now. I was out there with real stockmen or ringers as it came to be known. And, um, you know, I think, um, the boss's name at the time was, um, Lux Lethbridge, Lethbridge. which is Belinda, now Belinda Austin's husband, which is Stuart's sister. That makes sense. Yeah. So Lux hasn't been on the podcast yet, but he's on a property in the Pilbara and I, in my last job with the ag department, used to deal with him a fair bit. So. Yeah, he's a, he's a good Small man and, world. um, yeah, exactly. And, um, taught me a lot of lessons really that I've carried through to now, even though I wasn't there f- for long. And it is, I was probably only there for maybe three months and it was, it was probably my, one of my biggest regrets now that I didn't see the season out. I just got, I think it was terribly homesick. I didn't really know what it was at the time. I'd never been homesick before. Um, that's just something that I've come to label it as in hindsight, I think, but, um, yeah. I feel like I, I still feel like I did let Stuart down in many ways by not seeing it through. He came out and vouched for me really and took me back to the station. And Lux was a good, good man. He was a hard sort of tough fella, but, um, not unreasonable either. And I've carried lots of his leadership through and Stuart's too in many ways with the people that I deal with now. And, um, I appreciate getting up early, um, working efficiently fast and um finishing all all your jobs i guess too so a few things i learned there i'd love to catch up with lux and belinda again one day i did notice them in the last outback magazine actually there was an article written on those guys so that was good to see but Stuart austin um working with kids now which i do we work um with um bernie shakeshaft and the backtrack kids up in armadale in fact i'm going there next week again just to catch up and say good day but we went up there during COVID and Bernie took us out to one of his mate's properties with a few of the backtrack kids and um, up in, um, I can't remember where, his mate's house, Paul Root's house anyways, up Dorigo somewhere out that way. And another backtrack leader came over by the name of Dorso, who's, um, if you've ever watched the Backtrack Boys documentary, you'd know who I'm talking about. He gets chatting to me about um, sustainable cattle and and stuff like that and i said i keep track of a fella by the name um i keep track of a bloke who's right up on that i'm sure he's from around this area um that sort of intensive grazing um, technique that they're using he's like who what's your mate's name or who's this fella that you're talking about and i said oh um Stuart. and he goes oh Stuart, Stuart austin i said yeah he goes oh he's on the block next door so the next day i'm driving these backtrack kids um out for a fish or something down the waterfall and um I look in the rear vision mirror and there's a land cruiser or something like that, a farmer sort of car and um I'm like, I swear that that looks like Stuart. So I I pull over and just wave wave this car down and he pulls up and I go, Stuart He goes, Yeah. 
oh, Rob. So I keep in touch with him and I kind of said that I was coming up to Armadale but had no idea who was who in the zoo or where was what. And, um, yeah, it was good to see him and keep track of him. He looks exactly the same. But, yeah, what he's doing there with Wilmot and the pastures and um, the sustainable sort of stuff and the carbon credits, I think it's really innovative. It's great to see. There's pro- there's a lot of cattle bashing going on at the at the moment about um, you know the damage and stuff that they're doing to the land. But I think that forward thinking is great for the industry. And um, I think what I've what I've taken from Stuart in that time too is if you if you stick at something and see it through and and you know keep working hard at things, you grow bigger and better and um, things just work out for you in the end. Which you know for him it certainly has. So thanks to Stuart. It's so, I just love, it's such a big world, but it's such a bloody small world, like such a small world. When you were out at Kalani, did you, were you the only one that went out there then? Like your other mate went to Mount Isa, one went down to Alice, so you went out on your own? Yeah, so I was out on my own and they had two camps. They had a stock camp and then we had a weenie camp and I was in the weenie camp and at the time I was the only boy in the weenie camp too, so... It was the best place for me to be, really, like being green and fresh. Um, I had a couple of great horses, which were pretty easy, but um, one horse I enjoyed riding a lot more than the other, I recall. Jeffrey John, his name was. But, um, yeah, got to really get in, the, get in the yards and work the round yard and really learn how to work the animals in the, in the round yard really well. And I think that place there with the wieners just allowed me to grow in confidence and learn things really quickly. The girls were quite patient, probably manage that lifestyle and job a lot differently to being thrown maybe straight into stock camp. I think I did um, sort of yearn for being in the stock camp with the fellas and um, we went out there often to work with them and muster and stuff, but never I was never actually in that camp full time. So I don't know if that was what made it a little bit more difficult for me as well. I'm not sure. It's probably a range of things. Like I said, just young and well out of my comfort zone I think for you know a few months is probably what did it but it was it was a great time the girls were fantastic uh yeah I worked with Belinda every day um Rachel Houlihan I think was there and um a couple other girls I can't remember I remember their first names Libby and Rachel I think and but yeah it was good it was tops it was a beautiful property um the homesteads amazing well Sam Tapp actually taught me in um rural college and that was his home, hometown too. So, um, that was pretty cool to be on the property that Sam grew up on. It must have been a huge transition going from, from high school to the rural college. But at the rural college, and I've said this about them before, it's a very safe environment. Like that's what I loved when I went to the rural college. I had only kind of worked on a couple of stations, but there were short stints and quite different to the places up here. But at the college, it's like that safe, supportive environment. You're also paying to be there. And then when you make that move out to working on a station, you're paid to be there. So I feel like the pressure kind of whether or not it's put on you or you put it on yourself, I certainly put it on myself when I went out to a job. Like I can imagine, yeah, you're, you're at the Royal College, everyone's supportive and there's not that much pressure because you're paying them to be there and all of a sudden they're like, you know, you're out in a place and they're like, well, you've got to pull, pull your weight. Like we're paying you a wage, you better earn it. Yeah, for sure. And at at work now at Black Diamond Adventures, I've got a saying, and Rocky's probably heard it a couple of times, but um, I remember one day I was in the round yard and uh, Lux was in there and he's like, oh, Rob, jump out to the back um, backyards and push some more cattle up or whatever it was. And um, I opened the gate 
And he, he turns to me and he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, don't you walk through gates? Young bloke like you should be jumping fences. So I never opened the gate from there on in. I jumped every fence and at work too when the guys are moving a bit slow, I'm like, we don't walk through gates here, we jump fences. So it's become a saying thanks to him. I don't know if he's got a trademark or copyright on it, but I've stolen it. <laughs> I'll ask him about that. You might be getting a cease and desist letter in the mail soon. There could have been a few other words thrown in amongst the sentences there, I reckon. And so how did you, not not to kind of um, focus in too much on it and make you relive that moment, but when it came time to, to move on, like how did you come to that decision and I guess handle leaving before the season was over? Yeah, not sure. There were the days where you'd go to the phone and you'd have your card with a, like, you'd have credit on a card and you'd have to put, put the digits in and the numbers and call home. I'd call mum and dad and chat to them still regularly. And I think I probably even rang, I used to keep in touch with Rocky in those days. I probably rang him a few times as well just to, you know, touch base. And it was tough. It was really, really difficult. I knew, like, that someone would be feeling let down. Um, I didn't want to make that decision. I spoke to um, Rachel Houlihan, who was like the lead or the head stockman of the Wiener camp at the time. I, so I'd sit up at the rec club. Usually the girls would go to bed pretty early and I'd just sit at the rec club and watch a bit of TV, have a beer before bed. And I think um, I knocked on her door one night. I was just like, you just got to do it. I knocked on the door. And I'm like, Rachel, I, I just think I need to go home, hey. She's like, well, you're doing so well here. Like, you've come such a long way. Like, a boy from Sydney, um, your horse skills and all that's just improved dramatically. Like, you sure? Like, just think about it. So I thought about it and, yeah. And then I had to, obviously had to tell Lux, which, as you could imagine, was, uh, really scary, but. You get terrified telling him good news, let alone bad news. I know. He was, um, surprisingly, he, he managed it quite well, I would say. Um, he was a bit, uh, at first, a bit like, oh, no, you'll be right. Like, and then, um, he was like, well, and then he tried to come around. He's like, well, what, what can we do here? Like, how can we get you to stay? Like, can we, what if we take, send you out to stock camp with the boys or like, and there was a few options. And I think just, you know, when you've just made that decision a yeah, long time that ago. Ship sailed, yep. Um, and the last thing to do was to tell people. I think I, I probably had made that decision a fair few weeks before. And I wish I maybe had gone and spoken to them earlier about how, I don't know, I didn't know how I was feeling. It was a strange, strange sort of feeling that I never couldn't recognize myself. So, but if I had done and, you know, we had those discussions earlier, maybe, but it comes down to me, really. That was my fault that that didn't occur. No one's a mind reader. Like I work with kids all the time now and you do your best to pick how kids are feeling, but sometimes you miss things and um, things get away from you. But yeah, I don't know, maybe I wouldn't be here now either if um, I had have stayed. I'm not too sure, but it's a sliding door moment. I still love the territory. The impact that it had on me was unbelievable. Um, those guys were great. I've taken lots of things from their leadership and the time there. Kalani was amazing and I just, I really want more young people to know about that life and maybe give it a shot, I think. And I just wanted to touch on when you just said, like, it's my fault. I don't know if I would, like, I feel like that's pretty strong language and it kind of puts blame on you. I just think you did what was right for you in that time and you were 18 and you had 
whatever skills you had at the time. And I think to go and have the conversation with your, like your leading hand and then with Lux would have taken an enormous amount of courage. Enormous. Like I've, I've heard, we've all heard stories of people who just do a runner in the night. I worked at a place once. Um, and yeah, we woke up one morning and the sky was gone. He just left in the middle of the night. So to go and have those conversations or, you know, you even hear about people who, or they'll go and they'll text or something and that kind of stuff. Or the good one is when they're like, Oh, something's happened at home. I've heard a few stories about this and got to go home or such and such. And they go home and then they just ghost and they never come back. Like they're only supposed to go home for a weekend or a week or a funeral or something. And, but you went and had those. I still think like that's such an important part of your development. Possibly. The driveway was 42 k's long and it was to the Buntine, so <laughs> yeah. I, wasn't, I wasn't sneaking out. <laughs> I wouldn't have done that anyways, I don't think. It was it, like, um, yeah, I, I just knew that I had to have the tough conversation and, um, yeah, it was difficult. It's still really difficult for me now to, um, you know, to even say that, especially on a podcast really, but... Um, yeah, I'm thankful for everything that they did. That's for sure, and I'm I'm sure I didn't ruin the season by any means, but definitely would have they would have felt let down. So, um, yeah, and I, I mean it's probably a good thing for me to know that too because people, young people, work for me now, and they let me down. Maybe if I think about it that way, but um, I try not to. I try yeah. and just think, put myself. That's what you were when you were 18. You let people down too, but that's just part of experience and. Um, I don't let homesickness really get to me anymore, which is good. And I live, I'm away from my family and young three boys and wife, lots and lots. You know, Rocky works with people who are away from home a lot too. And we see it from the guys, don't we? They get a bit homesick from, from being, being away on some of those longer programs. And it affects like their mood and interactions with the kids and how they do their job. Um, but I don't let that happen anymore. I can recognize it and control it. So. Hey, it was a valuable lesson. Yeah, and as you were telling that story, there was something I couldn't quite put my finger on and I just kind of realised towards the end that what there was something very familiar about it and five years ago now when I was living in Wyoming, I actually left the place I was working early, like halfway through the season, not quite so much for homesickness, but I remember I still, like, when you're saying it's hard to think about it now and talk about it, like, I can't even look at photos from that period of my life or read my diary or anything because I just feel, like, so much shame about not sticking out the season and not finishing the job. So, and I wasn't 17 or 18, so I would have been, like, 28. So I think it can happen to anyone, but you just have to do what's best for you in the moment with what you've got. But so you've, you've had this adventure in the territory. You've, you've had that moment from school camp that's kind of set you off on this path and you've gone to the territory and then you've left. What, what did you think was next for you? Yeah, I didn't know what really to do, but, um, I loved, um, sport, I guess, from my time growing up. And, um, so I, I just signed up to become a PE teacher at uni. I'd already had early entry, not early entry, but I had been, um, given a spot at uni and I had deferred for that year anyway, so I had a position to go to. I don't think it was PE at the time, but then I switched and went and did PE and sort of just chipped away there and um, became a PE teacher and probably discovered that I really enjoyed that rather than knew that was for me. And I just, um, I worked, I loved hanging out with the kids every day. Like Rocky said before, I like, loved building relationships with kids and 
just hanging out and, and getting the best out of them doesn't matter what it was really in front of us. Um, just putting kids out of their comfort zone, asking them to stretch, uh, be their best version of themselves. Um, I took many of those attitudes from station life to school too, so I was pretty like, firm and consistent with the expectations in my classroom, um, particularly in PE too. Like if people had me for PE, they knew that we're actually going to do physical activity. So um, we had some pretty good classes. I had a few road classes full of boys and they were, they were some of my best classes as well. Um, but yeah, it's it was a good 10 years of teaching. I taught in London for two years. Um, I taught on, at Bulleye, which is one of my, um, that's where I live. It's my hometown and it's right on the beach. It's a dream job and it was a great experience teaching kids and I got to, to run the Duke of Ed and also replicate trips that Rocky did for me as a teacher and in 2015, actually, we did our first outback trip there and I called up Rocky, who was running Boomerang Adventures then, about 15 years down the track, I think, probably at the time. And we sort of had disconnected a little bit and it was a great opportunity for me to maybe um, force a reconnection and um, he came out and ran our trip for two weeks and since then we've, it's just been like it ever was from back in 2004. Um, we've probably worked together more, more than ever really since that point. So that was a great trip. Um, I know Rocky just took it on to, to hang out really with up with me for two weeks and see what's happening. And, um, yeah, we've been probably, and then since then we've probably been coming to the outback more and more every year since then as well. So that's been cool. That's what I want to ask you about now is this, this time when your paths crossed again, but I just also, want to check uh rocky you told me off air earlier that i know so obviously you were uh, rob's teacher in high school but did you say you'd also kind of been his teacher or one of his teachers since way before that as well yeah i, I taught rob since he was in year five uh so he uh he was at the school where i started and uh, he was in year five at the time and i remember a little rat loving sport getting him out there uh running around the oval uh from year five i just can't like this has got to be the longest student teacher I don't want to say the word relationship because it sounds weird saying that yeah, but you no, know like, like friendship or I don't know there's definitely there's definitely uh it's a great story really it is and uh we don't tell it often um but we tell it where it's appropriate um and that's often when we are with students who we're talking to about um what these sorts of trips can do what sort of impact they can have on your life uh and every now and then we'll tell that story and and one of the things that we do do on our big 18-day programs now is is share story. We expect the kids to tell us about their story and we share our story with them. So that obviously is part of that. Um, so Rob went out to, to Kalani and the Rural College, obviously, and then when he came back, it was about the time that I was starting Boomerang Adventures and I said to Rob, well, come on board. Um, so he actually started uh, with me when I started Boomerang Adventures in 2004. Uh, and then he went off and did all those things he spoke about, his travel and his teaching and, and all those sorts of things. And, and there was a fair gap between um, us catching up again when when things had gone full circle and Rob was going to take his students to the Outback uh, and I was lucky enough to, to go with him and and help run that program for them when they were going out there then. Talk to me about Boomerang Adventures. What is that just you doing kind of like these programs but full-time? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I left teaching, um, 
for me, uh, I had realized over the years of taking kids out in the bush that that was my passion. Uh, I loved uh, what I did and I loved getting kids outside the classroom. I really felt I could teach them more about life um, and lessons um, out, in, out of the classroom than I could in the classroom. So for me, it was pretty simple to, to follow that passion. So I left a good job in teaching and I began a, a company called Boomerang Adventures. And uh, since then, we've been able to work with lots and lots of students, thousands of students, different environments, different situations, uh, and just watch them grow through the the genuine experiences that we create uh, for kids to be involved in. How do you go about creating? Like I know it makes sense when you say they'll learn so much and they'll grow so much on these trips, but there's only so much I guess you can manufacture. Like it's not like a reality show where everything's kind of staged, but you can't you can't know in, and say oh, we're going to go on this trip and you're going to realize X, Y, Z about yourself or you're going to have this come to Jesus moment or you're going to develop in this way. So how do you, I guess, try and create an environment for those things to kind of naturally evolve? Yeah, that's a great question because um, we often talk about creating the environment and that that's how it happens. Kids don't grow if they don't feel comfortable. Uh, kids need to know they're cared for properly. Kids need to know that we're interested in them as people, as individuals, and we care for, for how they're travelling. And um, unless you create the right environment, not only between us and the students, but amongst the student body that's coming away with you, uh, you're not going to get that growth. And that sort of thing is hard to articulate and it's hard to actually put on paper and say to a school, hey, this is how this happens. It's something that we do uh, through feel. Uh, we understand um, teenagers. Uh, that's all I've ever done. I've only ever worked with teenagers my whole life. And um, having that understanding of them and knowing where to roll and, and where to move when when necessary to, to have that impact and to create that environment is really, really important. And it, it, it does happen by feel because every group is different. So you need to understand what group you're working with. You need to understand what's going to help them grow. Uh, then you need to be able to create that environment for them. And that's that's sort of what we do at Boomerang Ventures and it's it's been really successful. I think it sounds so incredibly valuable but like, like you said, it might be hard to articulate on paper because it's not like there's a set curriculum. It's it's not like, um, you know, we're going to go out and do this and then this is how we'll demonstrate that this has happened. We'll be able to test them and this is, you know, we can show you these. But you know things are happening, but it's not necessarily something yeah. tangible in a way maybe or something that you can, definitely, I don't know. Definitely not tangible. And it will be unique to every single kid on that mm. program and they may or may not see that in themselves at that time or it might be something that they realise later or um, might be something their parents notice in them even. So... Um, definitely that. If I, if I put it in the words or maybe, um, some, somewhere your listeners might resonate with, it's kind of like, and Bernie Shakeshaft talks about this, uh, the backtrack man, great man. Um, he talks about pressure on, pressure off. And when, when we're creating that environment for kids and Rocky talks about care and, um, it's not, it's not all sort of rainbows and flowers and stuff. Like there's firmness, there's challenge, there's tough times, but, it's knowing when particular kids can need to be pushed into those areas and there's knowing when the, that pressure needs to come off. Um, too much pressure off or a loose rein on the wrong horse maybe that might sit better with your listeners um, is no good. And, you know, there's some horses where you need to hold those reins a bit shorter or tighter. And 
you can have it when things are going well. A loose rein is good, and when things need it to be pulled in, it's a tight rein. But good workers, we have great teams and good staff, and it takes you being able to read that um, horse or dog or whatever to apply that pressure or create a different stimulus for that horse or whatever it is. Um, just like a great horse breaker will be able to you know, get, get a horse to lie down in uh, 30 minutes or something. You know, they're talented people that can get that feel and read off what's happening in that environment. What kind of degree or training or qualifications do you need to, I guess, essentially be a teenage whisperer? This is what we're not a horse whisperer or a teenage whisperer. Yeah, I don't know if I go that far, but um, <laughs> look, I, I just went through university um, and uh, did my teaching degree, uh, and and really it's just been a matter of of time and and being with students and watching them in different situations and seeing how they respond to different things and and knowing what's important. Um, I'm a I'm a firm believer in in good discipline, um, good firm, consistent discipline, kids, they buck up against it, but they really appreciate it. They sometimes don't know they do, but they really do. Uh, so that's one side of it. And the other side is that, that genuine care, genuine interest in, in you as a person. What What is it that makes you tick? What is it that I can see that you are going to benefit from this program in? And then those are the sorts of things you've got to look for. If you don't look for them, you don't find them. Um, so I always talk to my staff about looking for the gold in this job, you know, the gold in this job is, is about that sort of stuff. Finding out what makes a student tick, what is going to help them get the most out of it, uh, and where, where it is that you need to, to work to do that. And, um, yeah, that's, that's good fun to, to work through. How many of these experiences did you run before you left teaching and went out on your own? Like how long have you been kind of doing it for? Yeah, well, I, I, I taught for 11 years, so I had 11 years of teaching experience. Um, and in that time, I probably spent six or seven years running sort of camps and adventures and, and, and expeditions and things like that. Well, tell I just want to ask you about, um, so when you're running them as a teacher, I think it would be, like we were talking about off-air before, a lot easier for you to see the shift or any changes in the children because you know them before and then you can track them afterwards. You've got that long-term involvement in their lives. Now in the programs that you guys run, you kind of just spend a short period of time with these kids and you don't necessarily know them before or after. How Can you still kind of notice some changes in them or is that kind of harder to gauge? Do you have to keep engaged with parents or staff, you know, down the track for feedback or how do you, I guess, work around that? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a great thing as well. And, and there's no doubt that having your own school as a teacher and working with the students, uh, like Rob from year five, I knew Rob pretty well. Uh, his mum even used to ring me up and, you know, when he was in year 11 and 12 and say, Rocky, there's, he's not right at the moment. He needs, there's something. And, and I'll just go grab him and we'd go down and shoot some pool somewhere and, and shoot, chat about things and uh, then send him back and, and um, you know, the bit of change for a little while, but um, you've got that relationship. Now, obviously, we take students away that we don't have that relationship with all the time. So, again, it's it's a matter of learning how to build relationships properly and, and do that quickly. Uh, so there's a lot of simple things that you can do to, to help build your relationships. And, and once nothing happens without relationship. So if you can't build a relationship with a, a student uh, and get that genuine rapport, 
uh, then they're not going to grow and they're not going to learn and they're not going to want to learn from you. Um, so being able to develop that relationship quickly uh, is really important. And then, you know, most of our programs in the Outback are up to 18 days. Uh, so that's a fair bit of time and you're spending 24 hours a day pretty much with these students. So you do see a lot. Um, often we see a lot more than even the schools will see because they might be with a teacher for one period or an hour and then they go to sport and then they go home and the parents don't even see them because they're with their friends or there's a whole range of things but we see them 24 hours a day so we see lots and there's no hiding there's there's no your character will be on show your who you are as a person will be on show and and we can draw those things out we can look at the things that are good and highlight them and encourage them uh, but we can also see things that aren't so good and we can pull them aside and say hey this is what I'm seeing. Is this who you are? Is this who you want to be? Uh, what sort of person do you want to be? Because these things here aren't going to work for you. And, and and you just know that by the time you get to the end of your 18 days or whatever the program might be, that these kids have got a, a, a great respect and they've got an understanding of who they are. Uh, and you know, they're, you know they're a changed person. Yeah. That first trip that you took Rob and his class on in, um, out to Central Australia, that was 2002. So I got my first mobile phone in 2003 and it was very much still dial-up internet days, landlines, you know, sharing with your siblings. What's the change you've seen in the last 20 years as we've all become more connected and kids, I mean, we all love to talk about how kids are glued to their devices. How does that, you know, work in today, have you got kids out in camps who are trying to like take an Instagram selfie or create a TikTok about their camp experience? Yeah, that's uh, our big outback programs. My phone's banned. It's as simple as that. Um, and it's really interesting to to note when we're talking to kids, and we we have sessions we call tribal council, and we, we sit and talk about how things are going and how their day's been. And, and often uh, students will bring up the fact that they're actually really enjoying being away from that connectivity. They, 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 they're sort of like they can breathe easy. They can sit back and they don't have to worry about how they look and what, what their friends are doing or what they're saying or all those sorts of things. So to me, that, that's a big part of what we do is to, to strip that back and allow the students to be themselves and understand relationships are important. Um, and relationships aren't genuine through a phone or, through pictures or when we're out there, things are real. Everything is real. And, uh, and they recognize that a lot of their life is not necessarily that real and they appreciate it. Later on down the track, you guys are both kind of out doing your own things and your paths cross. I believe there's a bit of a story that goes with that. Yeah. So, um, obviously, you know, your life takes a funny path and it, and it's heavily influenced by those people. Um, that, that do the most for you in the younger age, so your parents and your teachers or your footy coach or whatever it is. Um, my mum and dad probably stretched themselves and sent me to a good school and paid for these programs and um, I'm going to have to do that for my kids soon, which is scary, but um, I know that it's worthwhile. And For example, when I first started the Duke of Ed, mum went out and bought me some hiking boots, uh, leather scarpers, which are pretty... If you're a hiker, um, you would know. It might be like having your first pair of Ariats or R.M. Williams maybe, but um, they were a beaut pair of shoes and I was fully grown then now, unfortunately. As you can tell, I'm a pretty much a 
legal midget, I think. But um, I had those boots all the way through from year nine, year ten, year eleven, and I went through and did the gold jig of it. And um, in two thousand fifteen, I still had these boots. I'd taken them all around the world. I'd been to London, Europe, and done some hiking, etc., over there as well. And um, when Rocky come back to run our trip with my school in two thousand fifteen. We camped off the side of the road somewhere down the Giles track or Stuart Highway somewhere. Um, well, I know exactly where it is actually because that night I retired those scarpers and we hung them in a tree in 2015 with my group of bull kids and the story was like, you know, you never know where, you, where your feet can take you really. It's not necessarily the shoes but the feet in, in the shoes is where you'll go. So we hung them in that tree and I reckon uh, since then it's become a part of our Central Australia program, or most of them anyways, where we head south to the rock. Uh, we'll stop there and camp there under those boots. They're yeah. still there. They're still there and um, we take every single group that's, that comes with either me, Rocky, or when we're both there together. Um, it's pretty cool and we tell the story about um, my Duke of Ed experience, Rocky's involvement, the boots, the support from your parents, where your feet can take you to where it might lead to um it's a, just a great symbol and it's a it's a really nice touch for our trip there it's something that no other company that could do if they took kids there and um i think it it probably rings a few bells for some kids too so it makes it real like rocky just said i've probably driven past those boots like I'm going to find out exactly where they are and next time I'm going to stop and have a picture with them i'm like i've driven ro- most of the roads down i yeah that's so cool so today you guys are both, I guess, doing doing this kind of work separately. Uh, as we spoke before off the podcast, you're technically competitors, but you work, you're up here in the Territory at the moment, I guess joint ventures, like you you, do, you work together when you can, which is great. And I just love that since, so year five, ten years old, I don't know how old you are now, but we're probably talking a good 20. 37. Okay, 37. so 27 years and he hasn't been able to shake you or you haven't been able to shake him. And you're running these programs. I guess we'll put all the links in the show notes so people can can find out about them. I better ask you though: Is this something you only do through schools, or if there was like a local community, like a like a local football club of teen, like still of teenagers, and they kind of wanted to book a trip or something? Does it have to go through a school, or could it be anyone if they kind of get together? Or it probably doesn't necessarily have to be. That's just where we get organically. But we have on uh, we have been discussing like this type of trip probably needs I would love every kid in Australia to have this yeah. experience. Um, I want to go on one of them. Not a teenager great. anymore. <laughs> maybe maybe it can be for kids that have specific or parents that are struggling or you know a footy team that you want to bring them together. I don't know but um, I mean it is an expensive trip I guess you know you don't have to be Einstein to work that out but um, not, nece- not necessarily. Philanthropists are for and grant funding and. Yeah and you know, being in Catherine this week too, we've we've thought about what opportunities can we bring to the kids of this area too. That you know, rural, isolated, indigenous kids, any of those categories or all of those categories. You know, they'd love to come on the Lara Pinta, I'm sure, or paddle a canoe up the Catherine Gorge. Um, yeah, hopefully we can do some more stuff with those guys. Now I'm I am conscious of time, but. There's just one last thing I want to ask you about before you get your final question is just 
to run me through the three components of the programs that you run these days because that is something I think is quite unique is so you've got the kind of the outback experience, the sort of more expedition-y kind of bit, but there's this community aspect which is, yeah, so while it is this big adventure, there's oh, you guys spoke very strongly and passionately this morning about how important it is for the kids to go out and get in whatever community they're in and give back. Yeah, Which I actually really wasn't expecting, to be honest. It's a, it's a great program and, and we really um, sort of value it and believe in it and we've seen the difference it makes in kids' lives. Uh, so the three components are really our, our... We want to teach them a little bit about station life, so we try and work somewhere on the land uh, and teach them some skills. Uh, like Rob learned at the, the rural college and just give them an understanding of the cattle industry a small understanding. Um, and we, we set it up like a stock camp and the kids cook on camp, camp ovens every night and those sorts of things. Uh, then there's the expedition uh, side of it and that's to, to challenge the students. We, we need to see them challenged to grow. Um, they learn about themselves a lot during that particular period of time. And then the final part is that, that work on country with Indigenous youth and uh, with communities and and we're, we're really keen to give back to communities in many ways. We want to be able to help out um, and we want to be able to offer students the opportunity to go down to Sydney and just open their eyes in that way as well. So, All right, so final question time. We'll start with you, Rocky. Looking back on your story so far, what would you say is the major takeaway lesson? Uh, uh, there's so many lessons and, and I've learnt lots over the years um, doing the things I do. Um, Clearly, I love it. I love doing what I do. But I think that the most important thing is to to look for those relationships, look for opportunities to build relationships with whoever it might be uh, in any situation um, because, you know, without relationship, there's not much else in, in the sorts of things that we do, really. Um, so looking to build good, strong, solid relationships, uh, look to be able to help people in different circumstances uh, and just look to to make people or help people grow uh, in any way that you can. And Rob, over to you. Yeah, plenty of uh, lessons as well. Obviously, you've heard a few. Look after people, commit and follow through with what you um, intend to do. Uh, work hard and wake up early. <laughs>